And I thought it was interesting that uh, you're based in Charleston. Did you know that the the hometown uh, birthplace of Sunbelt Business Brokers is in Charleston? I did. Yes. And, yeah. And I you have a linkage back to to that. Yeah. Well, I that that's my most direct franchise experience. Actually, is I used to own a Sunbelt office. So, um, all right, I can see people starting to starting to arrive. So let's uh, let's get the show on the go. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Dealmaking, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like, and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us live today. Uh, I've got a really fantastic guest today. Jeremy Bowlington is joining us from South Carolina. And Jeremy had approached me about a, a pretty unique twist on the whole conversation about franchises. And so uh, after having a, a, a brief chat to get to know him, I thought, you know what, this could be very interesting. So I invited Jeremy to come on the show. And Jeremy, why don't uh, why don't we start off by having you give us a, a brief background about how you sort of entered the world of business and, and how you became involved in franchises? Absolutely. And David, thank you for having me on uh, on the live show. Um, so yeah, so uh, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not originally from South Carolina. I'm actually British, grew up in the UK, um, out of school, went into the banking world and spent 25 years uh, doing that. Partway through that, had the chance to uh, do what was supposed to be a three-year assignment in New York. That's That was 25 years ago. <laughs> and so we're, we're still in the US. Um, now actually a US citizen. My wife and I got citizenship last year. Uh, but I left the banking world and I, I basically run large relationships. So far removed from from small business um, side, but ran large relationships with big, big companies, um, but left that world in 2015 and moved from the Northeast down to Charleston uh, and kind of went through a discovery process of, of trying to figure out what the heck to, to do. I was, I was just turning 50 um, and looked at actually some businesses that were for sale, couldn't find anything that, that was appealing here in, in Charleston. Um, thought about starting businesses and realized I didn't really have any good ideas. <laughs> so, or not that I thought we could, could translate to to something meaningful, um, and so ended up in the sort of what I always describe, I guess, as the middle ground where the franchising, where um, you know you're taking somebody else's idea, somebody else's system, uh, and you know, kind of going into that, albeit still, you know, as we've talked about in the past, you're still taking risk, you're starting a business, and particularly the the two businesses that I went into back in 2016 uh, were actually bricks and mortar businesses in the beauty space of all things. Um, and they were both at, um, I'd say like 30, 40 locations. Uh, and, and so you're very much, you know, bringing brands to, to a new 
to a new market um, and building those. So did that and um, as and, and we can obviously dive into that in more detail if you want to. But uh, I started um, kind of in, in early 2020. I'd been thinking about this and COVID hit. My businesses are closed and I started a consulting business, actually partnered with an existing um, consultant and you know, that business sort of launched that as we were all sitting around wondering what the world was going to look like in, in early 2020. Um, and so with that business, I helped people explore, you know, and kind of navigate the maze of, of franchising and the, the relevance to what we talked about in terms of E2 um, visas that I've really sort of developed a niche on that. I still work with people in the US right. that, are, that are exploring ownership, but I'd say probably 50, 60% of my time in that business is spent now working with people looking to find a business to come into the U S um, with, with an E2. So, yeah. So, so let's, I would like to take just a, a few moments to explore some of the franchise activity you had before back when you, you were a franchisee because you did spend some time be with an area development uh, role. Uh, you want to explain to everyone what that is for people that aren't familiar? Yeah, sure. Um, so actually, the, so the two franchise systems that I went into, I'm still in in one of those, but uh, the two were Blow Blow Dry Bar, which is a women's um, blow dry bar. And that was the one where I also did an area development deal. Um, the other business is a waxing um, studio, waxing the city, where I still have that that business here in the, in the Charleston market. Okay. Um, but the area, de- so the area developer um, piece, and there's, there's the, you see different, terms used for this um and it could be area representative area developer master licensee um i'd say those are the three most commonly used and sometimes they're confused with oh i bought the rights to you know kind of a a market and i'm going to open my own locations Um, right but what the what what i was doing and what i guess the area rep area developer piece really is is where you buy the rights to a larger area in my case it was actually four states um south and north carolina georgia and tennessee and you work kind of in partnership with the franchise or uh to recruit and and bring in franchisees um and so you essentially you pay a fee up front to acquire the rights and then you get a, a fee split with the franchise or both in terms of um initial franchise fees that are paid to the franchisor, uh, but more importantly, an ongoing split of the royalty um, stream. And so your your role in that case is, it's sort of a, a sort of a mix between, you know, you're bringing your operating experience as a franchisee um, to, to help and coach um, franchisees that you've brought in, but up front, it's much more of a franchise kind of sales element to it in that you're um, you know, you're developing leads, you're working with those possible um, franchisees to ultimately, you know, if somebody's a potentially good candidate to try to bring them into the, the system. Um, so, then- so, so what, I mean, I guess to, to draw a, a parallel with some other kind of industry, I mean, what franchisors do is they sell business systems, they sell business yep. units. So people that want to own a business can can sign up and get a franchise, and what the area developer role is kind of like the wholesale wholesale distributor for that 
for that business. If you want to compare franchises with uh, people that manufacture refrigerators, for example, mm-hmm. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the factory is going to have some kind of wholesaler representing an area that they're going to then distribute to the, uh, to the retail stores. That's kind of like what you were doing. You were looking to try to find potential franchisees and then help them get set up um, and you know, sort of sharing the risk vis-a-vis your investment to do this, but also sharing in the the long-term benefits of of having that person be productive in the network. Yeah, and I would say the you know the other element to that, I think you're right there in terms of that sort of you know kind of layered structure. I'd say the other thing of actually what really appealed to me at the outset was the the coaching element. I think that was something I enjoyed in my corporate life, mm. um, and it, it you know it was. It was a lot of fun kind of working with some really good people. And actually one of the coolest things was two of the franchisees that I brought in one kind of rookie of the year, one year after each other. So that was, that was pretty cool to, you know, I mean, obviously they did it, they won it, they worked really hard and built their business, but it was kind of cool to be, you know, the person that had perhaps sort of mentored them a little bit as they, as they came into the system. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Great. Great. And, and so, the pandemic then hit. Um, you you're no longer in the in the blow dry bar business at all. Then you that's you've correct. I mean, that. we sold okay. uh, we sold our business, and with that, the the area um, rep deal gets unwound. So we sold that actually last okay. uh, last year. It's so we did contingent. It was contingent upon you. Being you had to have yeah. You yeah. had to have a minimum of uh, of one location. Um, but okay. yeah, we we went through you know being closed. For, fortunately, South Carolina. Um, you know, got open reasonably quickly. I know, you know, actually the the blow dry business was was and still is headquartered out of Toronto. And I know, you know, a number of the owners in in Canada in particular was shot for for months on end. Yeah. I mean it was really, really tough with with that. And th- that was, you know, obviously that was a business that appealed to people going out, partying <laughs> events and and things like that. So um yeah, that was a very tough time for um, for a lot of the franchisees, particularly those in in you know big markets. So again, you think of like yeah. New York was a huge a huge market. I think it's come back now, but certainly not everybody came back in that in that regard. So so after that chapter, and, and may, maybe even a little bit driven by the pandemic time, you you got into the world of of franchise consulting. Uh, and and I've interviewed people uh, that do that uh, before. What, and and just for everyone who's watching in the notes, if you go and look, there's a link to a playlist where I've linked every video I've ever made that has anything to do with franchises. There's probably about 20 of them there. Um, but your role in that capacity is you meet with people that are looking for a business opportunity. You help to match them with the right franchise. Can, can you explain a little bit about how you found this unique niche with respect to E2 visa applicants? Yeah, it it, it really was. I, and I wouldn't say that I started out, you know, thinking that that's that's the direction I'm going to go. Part of part of why I got into the business in the first place was that um, I in that area developer uh, role with with Blow, I had been interacting with quite a lot of consultants. Some some really good ones, and I partnered with one of them, but some really bad ones as well in mm. terms of people that just didn't know their clients, clearly weren't, you know, kind of really taking the time to get to, to get to know them. And so I, I felt that, you know, I, I'd seen the good and the bad 
of that. Plus I'd gone through that process myself and, and, you know, kind of learned and made some mistakes and felt that I could, I could bring that to, to help people. Um, the two thing is sort of interesting because, uh, we actually had, um, a, a lead come through actually from a referral source. Um, and my, my business partner based in Denver and, um, this particular lead was, um, was somebody in Germany. Uh, and she said, you know, why don't you run with it? Um, you know, it's easier from an East coast versus mountain time zone. Um, yeah. and it turned out that the individual actually worked for Volkswagen and way back in like 1994 in my banking days, I used to do business with them. So our first conversation was talking about their headquarters building and things like that. It was still there. And so we had an immediate sort of connection and, um, you know, we ended up working through process, long story short, found, um, the uh, the individual a, a business in uh, in actually the in home senior care space he's now two years into almost two years I think into um, that business having gotten his E two and I think it was like September twenty twenty one and that was that was a little bit painful because it was very very slow at the time in um, in Germany and in terms of the wait list at um, the Frankfurt console was I think nine or ten months because again because of COVID lockdowns um but he got approval um i think he's up to about 45 50 maybe more now employees i haven't spoken to him in three or four months but um it's kind of a cool cool story there and that that you know that was a successful um and certainly looking back now two three years later um has proven to be a very successful um move for him um and he sort of connected me with a couple of resources that he'd used in terms of um, preparing business plans and, and other yeah. elements of the you know, sort of immigration attorney side. And so I, that sort of ended up rolling into mm, this is kind of an interesting space. I mean, having come to the U.S. myself, um, albeit under different circumstances, um, I, you know, I felt that I could sort of connect particularly with people coming from, you know, from Europe or um, other Anglo kind of markets, yeah. like Canada, Australia, et cetera. Now, I've, I've interviewed uh, an immigration attorney before, Aga Asbury, uh, and I put a link down below in the notes as well to the interview that I did with her. Um, and in that, in that conversation, you know, we talk about sort of how to get the E2 visa, one has to be from a, a particular subset of list of countries. And then there's a certain investment that has to be made. You have to demonstrate the investment. And there's this whole sort of series of steps that has to happen, uh, sort of meshing the business activity with the paperwork and the filings and everything that go on in the government. And so one of the things that I thought was very interesting the first time I spoke with you, Jeremy, was that you, you kind of mentioned to me how there are some franchises in particular that maybe do not lend themselves so well to people who want to do this versus some that can be more easily sort of uh, managed to match that paperwork flow. Can, yeah. You want to give an example of that? Yeah. I, you know, I think the um, the area that I typically avoid, uh, because I think it is just difficult in terms of that, um, you know, that time sequencing um, that you touched on, David, is, is really anything that's, that's a... Uh, bricks and mortar kind of like, you know, by that, I mean, not something that needs an office space, um, but something that's actually got a physical store. So, I mean, the businesses I, I had and have would be perfect example of that in terms of, um, you know, salon type businesses. 
because so, if you- so just as an example, the blow dry bar, I mean, that we're not talking about a lot of heavy machinery and equipment there, but we are talking about certain decor elements and, and sort of trade fixtures, just ballpark. Like if, if you had an empty commercial spot, like how much would it cost to build a business like a blow dry bar? Yeah. I mean, I would say, it, so obviously it, it does vary by market, varies by the space mm. you're going into and everything, but um, the, the typical, the physical build out and the, the fitting out of one of those businesses, um, I would say somewhere between a hundred, hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand, and that's that's ignoring, um, it's ignoring franchise fees up front. It's ignoring, right. um, you know, kind of working capital to that you're going to need because you're probably not going to be cash flow positive on day day one. Um, but it's and, and so, but but th- that dollar figure on the surface would seem to indicate that this would be an ideal sort of investment for someone that wants that visa. But the problem is, of yep. course, of when you actually write those checks versus when the paperwork kind of gets approved, right? Yeah, because the so the 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 really you know the interesting thing on the E two is and and some of the, there's definitely gray area. I mean, I think one of the challenges, and I think this came through on on um, you know that 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 earlier. Um, uh, video podcast that you mentioned with with the attorney because I think she touched on on a number of those things um, is that it's all all of the things are gray like as in the the investment amount there's no absolute minimum but what most of us take as a, as a sort of a working minimum is is a hundred thousand us we've certainly I've seen approvals below that but I think it mm-hmm. it starts to get more challenging um, and then the other element is that that sort of the the investment has to have been made and be at risk. Um, and again, in a, in a perfect world, you know, the, the strongest business case is going to be an operating business. So if somebody's buying an existing, an existing business, whereas what we're talking about obviously is somebody starting a new location. So let's now sort of think about the, the starting the new location, um, you know, it, it's very, very hard to get an E2 approved if you go to the consul and say, I've paid the franchise fee. Let's say that was $50,000. i have you know, I've bought um, or I've put a deposit down on on the um, the millwork that's going to, you know, transform that square box of a space to a, to a salon. I've bought all the hair dryers. I've bought all the... Um, but I'm still working on the space. I haven't signed the lease yet and yeah, that that type of thing. So yeah, you could probably demonstrate you've made the the investment or some of it, but you haven't made it all. And you're also not ready to, to open. Um, and so if somebody is looking at a bricks and mortar space, I think what they, they and if they're absolutely set on that, you know, what my advice would be is that you've you've got to A, you know, and again, if it were a friend, let's assume they're doing a franchise, you've got to sign the franchise agreement, pay the franchise fee, because the franchisor is not going to start looking with, you know, working with you to find space until they know that you are a paid up franchisee. Right. Um, they will then work with you to find space. You've got to negotiate the lease. Um, I saw across on my area developer side, we, we had, um, eight or nine locations open. The fastest from signing was probably five months, six months. The longest mm. was like 19 <laughs> months. And it certainly wasn't from any lack of effort and work on the part of the franchisee. It was just we could not find the right the right space. And, and we were very focused on waiting for that 
that and so but. and so the fear on the part of the potential applicant is that they spend all this money and sign all these agreements and not really knowing if they will be approved or not for the exactly visa. exactly right. and and also so if you think about let's say you find the space it takes let's say four to five months to negotiate a small you know a commercial lease which you know typically that process moves very slowly because often you're negotiating for a relatively small space in a you know perhaps a big commercial plaza um and that process just doesn't <laughs> doesn't move very quickly so that's the the clock's ticking you know you've paid the franchise fee um but then you know not only have you got to negotiate the lease you've really got to start the and and maybe even complete the build out um so you by then you know you may have a rent allowance that you're not paying rent for a few months but maybe that's gone so you then you know while you're waiting on your um your e2 um and if you know i think it's it's a little bit different if somebody has the flexibility to be able to come in and out of the u.s so if somebody's in you know in canada and can you know can kind of come back and forth a little bit then um you know that that does ease it a little bit but you've got that potentially long time period um costs as you're doing that. And then you've still got to be you know, kind of basically sort of ramp up this business. You know, you've got a built out space, you've got to hire, you're probably not going to do that until, you know, your E2 is approved. But as you say, what happens if you don't get, if you don't get approval? So, so, so what then is the solution? Obviously it's a different kind of franchise, one with less of sort of the upfront capital investment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, I'd, I'd say there's, sort of one or two parts. I mean, if somebody's absolutely set on, you know, I want to do a salon business, I want to do a cafe, I, you know, something that's, or a, you know, a gym, let's say, because those all fall into that same type of category. I think my advice there is, you know, you, we've got to find a resale, be that, um, yeah. you know, be that franchise or be that standalone business. And I think with a resale, that becomes a very different, so, so this is an existing franchise where the owner wishes to sell, and so you're you're buying an existing business. You look can look at the track record of, of the yeah. of the numbers and and everything, and make a decision about it. Both from the point of view of examining uh, an existing business, but also I'm still going to get the benefits of being a part of this franchise if I if I yeah. want that. Yeah, and I would say it's yeah. either you know if somebody's set on that you know specific type of business, it's either a franchise or they're looking for a you know, for a, for a non-franchised standalone, standalone business. And, you know, those, the real estate and the build out piece goes away because it's already there. And it's, mm -hmm. I think a lot easier to negotiate kind of a, you know, effectively a contingent closing continue, you know, you're paying the, the purchase price into escrow. You're probably negotiating with the landlord, the assignment of the lease, again, contingent on the closing of the, of the transaction. So I think And and are you saying that that the the closing of the deal cannot be made contingent upon the the receipt of the E2? No, I mean often what we'll see is that that um the uh the purchase price is is paid and it's it's paid into escrow with with that because the individual's not taking control of the business until until the E2 is approved. Now, the challenge there, obviously, is that if you're a right, seller- Right, because, because if the seller says, you know, if I'm going to sell to this person who needs a visa, I'm worried that 
this thing may fall apart. Exactly. Having that money sitting in escrow demonstrates that, yeah, the funds are real. Their funds are sitting in escrow. As soon as the paperwork is complete, this thing is yes. is going to happen. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And from the E2 perspective, you've got, you know, that allows you to show that you've made that investment because it's sitting right. there. The only contingency is the E2 approval. Um, if the E2 is approved, then, you know, the seller gets his, gets his proceeds. The, the challenge with that, I think, is always, you know, if you're selling a business, um, you know, there's definitely a lot more risk to engage with an E2 um, purchaser from that perspective because, you, you know, you are going to have that time, that time element and that contingency of the, of the visa side. Well, I, I guess it really depends on, on why you're selling the business, right? Because if, if there is an, a time urgency function to it, then yep. yeah, you might be more tempted to deal with someone else who could close more quickly. But if, you know, if you just want to retire and you have a successful, profitable business, you know, a, a four month delay in the sale just means you get to own the profitable business for four more months. You, you make more money. So yeah. I, it really That's does true. come down to the motivations of the seller, but it, but it certainly is a, a factor that most sellers would consider. Yeah. Um, what then to bring us through the alternative then, if someone wants to start a brand new franchise, can you give us an example of the kind of franchise that, that they might be able to do this with? Yeah. Yeah. And so typically what I'm looking at is, is, you know, what, what's out there that that doesn't require that physical bricks and mortar store um, storefront for want of a better better phrase mm. um, so you know I, and actually the, the business we, we talked about briefly in terms of my my first e2 client um, in-home senior care is a good good example because that business typically most most of the franchisors in that space require you to have a small office space so in in that instance the um, the candidate kind of leased for a, on a very short term basis a small a small space so he could demonstrate that he that he had that um, and really outside of that there were very few um, you know kind of other fixed elements because it's you know it's a business that other than having a laptop um, not a lot of not a lot of equipment requirements it's you know, to get, so you can say, well, how do you get the investment amount? So in that case, you know, the individual purchased um, a couple of territories. I think that was somewhere up in the 80, 90,000 range. Um, and, you know, various travel expenses to, to do due diligence, to meet with the franchisor um, and, you know, various other smaller elements, but that, that, you know, kind of led to a successful approval. Um, I'd say the, probably the more common types of businesses, um, because that, that in-home care, you, it, it, it fits somebody that really wants to build, you know, kind of a people heavy business. I mean, right. you, you know, it, it's a, it's, I, it could be a great business, but you've got to have a certain type of person that wants to, to build that where I've. So, so now in that case, I mean, would, would that. The, the person has paid the home health care franchise for these territories. W would that purchase still be contingent upon the ultimate approval of the visa? Like, would they have an out to be able to recover that money if they, for whatever reason, didn't get approved uh, by the government? Yes. In that case, he had negotiated that. And okay. it, it that I would say sort of varies by franchise or it also varies by individual. Sure. Sometimes what I've seen are instances where the franchise will say, okay, we got, we got two options. You know, if you want to start 
the business um, straight away and and you know go through training. Maybe you're you're looking to hire a, a GM to run a business for you. Um, so we're sharing kind of the secret sauce, if you will, of, of our system and and putting you through training. Um, so if we do that, you know, we can't we can't refund, but at the same time, you're that much further along in the setup and establishing your business. So in theory, that strengthens your, you know, your case for E2. So I've I've seen franchisors kind of offer that as a will, you know, if you want to start your business, go through training, et cetera, we can't refund. But if you want to pay the fee, secure the territory, and then wait for the E2, we will, you know, we'll agree a contingency that if you're, you know, you if, if you do everything within your power to get the E2, but you're just declined, we will refund either fully or or partially the the fee. So it, it it's definitely case by case by case, but that's um, you know definitely an option there. I'd say the other so the the types of I'm um, just thinking of some of the um, businesses that I've seen approvals and worked with people on in the last. Um, 18, 24 months, um, an irrigation business where the, mm-hmm. the setup was, you know, relatively simple in terms of the, you know, it's purchasing a van, the equipment franchise fee that gets the, you know, to the, the sort of the, the hundred thousand, um, level or so, um, what else have we got in, um, kind of this senior relocation kind of estate sale, um, business where again very I mean, equipment light other than laptops um, and maybe sort of branding for a, a vehicle um, but purchasing territory purchasing the system um, we got a clean clean approval on on that um, I'd say you know a lot of the home service businesses definitely mm-hmm. lend themselves to you know perhaps individuals that are coming not from the corporate world um, and you know, in some cases want to be actually out there in the, the truck, at least initially, um, and then hiring employees to, you know, to scale the, the business. So yeah, a, a variety, but typically with that, that kind of consistent element of, of, you know, if it's equipment, it's typically trucks and, um, have, and have you company. had any clients run into trouble with the process? Um, we've had one, I think in the, in the the period that I've been doing, it had one decline, um, and that was a I think a situation where the the individual um, kind of didn't follow all of the advice that we had given, chose not to not to engage with the immigration attorney that we that we recommend, and so and, and by we I mean myself plus. Um, kind of one of my referral partners that writes business plans. Um, right. And, you know, he didn't, the individual didn't have a deep business background. And I think that just came through, you know, at the console. Mm. Um, and so that did not move forward. He did get his, get his franchise feedback because he had done kind of a, a deal with the franchise or that, you know, if he wasn't approved, he, he would get the refund. So, um, you know, that, Unfortunately, you know, we you never like to have to test that, but um, but it just goes to show that you know E two is definitely not a you know a rubber stamp visa if there is such a thing. It's right. You know, yeah. I think that comes back to where you you know where you started the conversation in terms of just the the nuances of the uh, 
you know, of the process and that, that it, you know, you have to work through all of that. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, a complex system. And even though, you know, the website may be there in English and you might be proficient in English and believe that you understand what's being asked of you on that site, um, you may not be fully aware of what exactly it is that they want, you know? And so, you know, for most people, they might do this process once in their life, twice in their life. Uh, you know, meanwhile, these, uh, consultants and attorneys that are working on this stuff are, are literally putting dozens or hundreds of people through. I mean, it, it, you know, given the, the, the risk, you know, if you, if your intention is to make this move and then you screw up the paperwork and you can't do it, you know, th that's a pretty big downside, right? Uh, it would yeah. seem to me that spending a little bit of money with the right attorneys to, to help make it happen would make good sense. I think, I think you're absolutely right, but it, it does, it, it never ceases to amaze me. I mean, there are a number of Facebook groups out there for people looking at, at, um, you know, kind of this process. And a lot of times, I mean, you see people on there that, that, you know, really should just go get a good attorney. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's absolutely money well, well spent because I think that's, you're, you're absolutely right. Particularly because you, you know, you, whether it's making that investment, you're incurring expense perhaps to travel to the U S to investigate the businesses and, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the attorney fees are, I think generally quite reasonable. And, you know, it's obviously important that you, you find somebody that's, that has, you know, deep experience, particularly in, mm. in E2s, um, because there are, you know, if you, if you end up partnering with somebody that's just doing corporate, um, visas and doesn't have that experience that can, you know, it's better than nothing, but it could, <laughs> you're probably not spending the money as wisely as you, as you should. Are, are there any, uh, trends that you've noticed, um, sort of in the, in the topics or market or sort of, uh, business models or, or industries that are, that are sort of on the rise with, uh, with respect to this particular application? Yeah, I would, I would say, and this is probably more, more generally in, in franchising as a whole, if you, if you go back sort of pre COVID it, it, and, and I always like, I, I try to avoid the term, like what's the hot franchise because mm. to be that it's sort of irrelevant. I mean, it's like, what's right for the, for the person that you're working with in terms of budget skill set you know, desire for what the role of the owner looks like and, and things like that. But pre COVID, I would say, um, you know, kind of a lot of the boutique fitness businesses were very hot. Um, you know, just a lot of growth in that, um, you know, COVID obviously impacted that, but I think also just, you know, it was starting to get saturated, I think. And, and, you know, I really don't spend any time on that that side, because I think it's, it's hard to differentiate between so many different, you know, niches there. Um, but what I've seen, and this certainly started, I think with COVID when everybody was at home looking at things around their house going like, I need to, we really need to get around to improving that or, you know, creating the space or whatever the, you know, whatever the, the, the need is. And so there, there was a big sort of growth in, in home service businesses i think that you know those that were already in the space were doing particularly well um and so you've seen a lot of people come into that i think a lot of it sort of increasingly private equity um backed i mean there are a number of private equity kind of groups that have been you know sort of assembling multi-brand 
um, right. multi-service, you know, a, you know, pick every every possible service that you can imagine for your home. And they're sort of building individual brands to, you know, meet those individual services. Um, and so it, I, it's interesting. It's interesting. The first experience I had with that was actually, you know, we were talking about it before I, before I played the introduction about how uh, I was once a Sunbelt business broker franchisee. And I remember I was around that time, uh, a, a company called Merry Meeting had purchased Sunbelt mm. and Merry Meeting had several other franchise brands. And that's what they were. They were a holding company of franchise brands. And, you know, what they brought was just experience and learnings from running other franchise systems. They were able to bring some, some stuff into the Sunbelt world that was useful for people. But increasingly, this is uh, an area of value add, isn't it? It's these companies that develop an expertise in running franchise systems. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, because if you, if you think about it, I mean, it's, and, and that's something I always sort of look at when, you know, if you've got somebody that's created, you know, whatever the business is, they've created a successful corporate business and they decide to franchise it. I think the one thing I'll always say to people if I'm talking to them about that is, you know, it's, it's great to create whatever the, you know, whether it's a, I don't know, the latest fitness sort of iteration or whatever, but can you then actually, you know, shift from that mentality to the build of a franchise system, which is a combination of, you know, it's say, it, I mean, in many ways, it's sort of what I saw and did in the area developer piece. It's, it's, it's sales because you've got to get franchisees in, you've got to get the right ones in. But then, you know, the single most important thing is, can you support them? And can you, you know, you're only going to be successful as a franchisor and grow ultimately if your franchisees are successful. So can you take that, yeah. you know, business that you, you created and, you know, make it successful across multiple markets? And I think that's where that, that sort of multi-brand, um, you know, kind of conglomerate growth is happening because you've got companies that have been successful at that and basically then, um, you know, replicating that in, in, in across multiple brands. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, this has been, this has been really interesting. I want to thank you very much for coming by today and speaking to all of us. If, if someone wants to join up with you uh, online, where's the best place they can find you? Yeah, uh, best way to get me is uh, LinkedIn. Um, so Jeremy Bollington, I think I am the only Jeremy Bollington on LinkedIn. <laughs> so uh, you find me there, connect with me, um, shoot me a, a private message. I'd love to chat with you if you, you know, whatever the topic around franchising and 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 visas. I'm more than happy to speak with anybody that wants to uh, pick my brain on it. Awesome. Well, I will add uh, the URL to your LinkedIn profile into the show notes here in just a few minutes after we finish uh, to make it easy for people to find you. And uh, just a reminder, if you go down the show notes, everyone, you're going to find a link to the interview I did with Aga Asbury, the, the uh, immigration attorney uh, based in Portland, Maine, who works with people to get E2 visas, as well as the link to the playlist of all the videos I've done about uh, franchises or on the so topic of franchises. And don't forget my 2015 book, Franchise Warnings, uh, a collection of a series of stories uh, of, of different uh, people that I worked with who were in the world of franchises back in my business broker days. Uh, and uh, really, you know, sort of highlights the idea that when you're when you're buying 
uh, a franchise, you are buying uh, a business system. And just like buying anything else, you know, you have to do your due diligence and really figure out what it is that you're going to be getting for the money that you're going to be paying. And so like any commercial interaction, uh, you got to take the time to to analyze things and make sure that you're making the right choice. And, and that is part of what you're doing uh, in your role as a franchise consultant, correct? Is just helping to to line people up with the right thing. Yep. Yeah. Well, David, thanks. All right. Thanks so much. I appreciate being uh, being on today. No problem. Well, let's uh, let's finish this off. And for everyone watching live, thank you very much, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. So, how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor. Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you. This episode of Small Business and Deal Making is brought to you by smbpodcastnetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. And if you've discovered us today via the network, then I hope you're enjoying the show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss any one of our great episodes.